Well, greetings to all of you. Some of our song leaders sometimes use, and I hear once in a while, uh, an expression, Happy Sabbath. And uh, it bothers me a little when I hear that expression, and I'll tell you why. Not that I don't want you to have a happy Sabbath, there's nothing wrong with the saying, I guess. But I always associate it with Joseph Tkach. <laughs> I don't know whether he was the one who first started using that, but if he wasn't, he caught on to it very quickly. And I, I can remember over the years him saying, Happy Sabbath to you all. And... Uh, it just brings that image to my mind when I hear that. <laughs> you do it too. <laughs> and then another one did it today, and I, I hear it here and there. Uh, like I say, it's nothing wrong. Maybe it's just personal. I may be the only one that reacts to that, but I, I associate it with him, and it just always comes to mind. So I was sitting there thinking, why couldn't we say a joyful Sabbath or a blessed Sabbath or a peaceful Sabbath or a wonderful Sabbath or a restful Sabbath or a long Sabbath or something <coughs> rather than happy Sabbath? But, I mean, it's totally innocent. I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to correct anybody or, or put anything down. It's just one of those things that got started in the church and from him it spread, and a lot of people started using it, and uh, it was used at the feast and this and that, and, and it's carried on. Not sin, not wrong, just a personal problem for me. <laughs> but if you want to invoke thoughts in my mind of Joseph Tkach, just use that expression. I'll, I'll deal with them. It doesn't destroy my Sabbath, but it makes it not quite as happy there for a few seconds while I kick that off. That's, I've been intending to say something about that now for a long, long time, and I'd always forget about it, so this time I jotted it down. <coughs> anyway, if that's the biggest problem we have, I guess things will go well. That's about it for announcements. That was a big deal. <coughs> well, let's get on back to... Uh, to Ephraim, our nearest father from history and the past, the one which we're sprung from, and once you're sprung from Ephraim, that's the last of our fathers that are mentioned in the Bible, and we as that tribe, once it, once it got from Jacob down to the twelve, uh, then those tribes grew from there, and they're dealt with from there as those tribes. And since we're Ephraim, I'm spending quite a little time on this, and especially considering what's going on in the country. Now understand, too, that being the church of the firstborn, we are in the same category scripturally uh, as the firstborn, as Ephraim, uh, as well as Judah. We're referred to in the scripture often as spiritual Jews, but I think you can also since this is the church of the firstborn, say that we are the church of Ephraim. So both those fit, depending on how God is approaching it in the scripture and what he's talking about. And I certainly think that the church fits in here 
the same way that the physical nation does in addressing Ephraim here in the book of Hosea, because the prophecies are keyed to this country, all of them. So when he opens the book of Hosea, the beginning of the minor prophets, which go on chapter after chapter, he addresses Ephraim almost, well, not exclusively, but a great degree. He does talk about Jacob and, and Israel as a whole and Judah some, but the, the tribe that's singled out is Ephraim. And picking it up in chapter 12, I did get down to about verse 8, <coughs> but I wanted to make a comment in starting here. We were talking mostly about the nation last week. But it says, Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. And let's plug the church in there for a moment, spiritual Ephraim, and realize that much of what is being preached and taught throughout the church today is nothing more than wind. There's nothing really there much to hang your hat on, nothing to get strong sustenance from to help us grow, to change, and overcome. And I've heard that from comment, or that comment from people who have visited various uh, splinters of the church, that they're not getting much. What's there is okay for the most part, but it just isn't strengthening it. It isn't empowering. It doesn't help people see themselves and make the changes they need to make. Uh, wind doesn't nourish you a whole lot. And he says that's what's going on. There's a famine of the word, as Amos puts it. But let's move on down. <clears throat> Remember we talked about Jacob and went back and reviewed his covenant with God and the pledge that he made. Uh, and his dream was at Bethel, or the house of God, became, came to be known as that. And it was the gate to heaven, to God's throne. So that Bethel, which became Jerusalem, is going to be very important in the end time in terms of access to God. That's the gate whereby we have that access. And he is going to draw his people there. And it talks about how the eternal of hosts is the memorial really that he set up in verse 5. And so his advice to us, based on what Jacob did, and he's bringing it out for us and to us here. Therefore turn you to your God. Now why does he tell the church to turn to God? Haven't we been called out of the world? Haven't we already been turned to God? Yes, we did. We turned away from the world to some extent, and we did turn to God to some extent. But the church never turned to God in the way that he wished we would, not wholeheartedly, not totally. So he blew us apart and told us to start over and make another run at it. So, after we've been scattered, that's what we need to be doing. Turn to God and keep mercy and judgment and wait on God continually. Be patient and wait on him to do his work, his strange work, his wondrous work, all the things that it calls the work that he is about to do, his powerful, his majestic work. It's about to be unleashed, and it will happen. So he goes on here, <clears throat> Therefore 
oh, wait a minute, verse 7. He is a merchant, speaking of Ephraim. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And we know that we have been oppressed, are being oppressed, and right now the oppression is being turned up several notches. Our money is becoming more and more worthless, even though we've been a great merchant nation. In 1944, with the first Bretton Woods, we were the world's greatest creditor nation. More people owed us money than any other country on earth in 1944, and they made our currency the reserve currency for the world. Now this very day, the leaders of 20 nations are meeting in Washington, D.C., and it's being described by various columnists as Bretton Woods II, in which, again, they intend to change the economic system of the world, and they're calling for the U.S. dollar to be removed as a reserve currency and a new one put in place. And today, from 1944 to 2008, we are now the greatest debtor nation on earth by far. We owe more money than we could possibly ever pay back. That's where we are. We have oppressed the world with our worthless dollars. Even though we blessed them at one point, it has turned to a curse to them. And now they're hating us more and more. And Ephraim said, when faced with this situation, Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. I've become the wealthiest nation on earth. Of course, we still hang on to that myth when we're not anymore, and it will soon become quite apparent that we aren't. But we were. But we still like to think that way, don't we? We still have more stuff than anybody else on earth. So we still have that feeling of richness, like we have everything. But he said, I found out substance, in all my labors they shall find no iniquity in me that were sin. Now whether we today, as a majority of Americans, would consider ourselves a Christian nation is neither here nor there, I think. The attitude is the same in saying that we're the good guys. We're not the bad guys in our minds, are we, as a nation? We think the Russians are bad guys, and the Iranians, and the Iraqis, and whoever else, they're the bad guys. But we're the good ones. There's nothing wrong with America. A lot of Americans will tell you that. And if they do think there's something wrong with America, it's only a few leaders that are the problem whichever is not the leader of their party, maybe even. So we don't see sin in ourselves as a nation. And you know, that is the same attitude that is in the church for the most part. Everyone says, we're the Philadelphians, we're okay. I want to tell you, sitting back there just looking at the congregation a few minutes ago, and it just overwhelmed me how much I appreciate you people. You are not denying yourselves. 
Now, that could be taken two ways. You're not denying what you are, is what I'm trying to say. You're not denying that you still have problems. You're not in denial. You are listening. You are working. You are studying. You're trying to be what you should be. There are very, very few who are doing that. Now, I may cry aloud and spare not, and I may make a lot of noise at times, and I think that it's necessary because that's what God says is necessary here at the end. Most people still won't listen. But I think for the most part you do. And I, for one, truly appreciate it and appreciate you for what you are and for what you're doing. You know, we're beginning to get a history out here together, aren't we? Been at this now for six, seven, eight years. We've known each other since, well, some of us since 2000. That's eight years. We're watching our children grow up and get married. We're watching some of us get old and die. We're watching each other try to fight health problems and all kinds of things. And we have a history together now. We're becoming more and more a family. And I appreciate that. And I'm sure that God does. When he looks down and he sees that most of the church is in denial of their own Laodiceanism, it must frustrate him greatly. And that's why he keeps putting the pressure on and why he's going to put most of the church in the tribulation. And if he does see those who are willing to admit their problems, their lacks, their needs, their weaknesses, and work on them, he can't help but feel a love, a concern, a feeling for those people who are willing to do it right. And you young and single people are a shining light as far as I'm concerned. When you reach marriage age, there's no one really around to marry. And you go ahead and you fight through it, the frustration, the loneliness, denying even those <coughs> natural things of being joined together with husband or wife, raising a family. And they're just simply right now is not the opportunity. But yet, you're not out there dating with the world, you're not mixing with them, you're just doing the best with what you have to do with. And I may get on you and yell about it once in a while, but, uh, you know, some, we, we have to do what's necessary to keep it right. But when I see the example of some of you, and some of you are way past 19 or 20 or 21 or 22 or 3, and don't have any real prospects, and yet you're handling it. and you're, you're leaving it in God's hands. And he will reward that. I know he will. Paul spoke of it in 1 Corinthians 7, and how difficult it was, and how there comes a time when he said, you don't even worry about marriage. Put God first. Now, if he, in the years ahead makes the circumstances where that can be, then wonderful. But meantime, if you're putting God first, you can't help but be rewarded in the long run. So I'm sure he appreciates it. I know I do. Sometimes I look at you and I say, how can you handle this? How can you do it? 
I'm glad I'm not faced with it at the moment. I don't know that I could handle it. When I was that age, I was in college, and there were girls running around all over the campus. <laughs> Just pick one, you know. Now you don't have that luxury. Though you're having it rougher in some ways than some of us did. You know, when the church was bigger and it was all together, you go to the feast and it was a smorgasbord. Not that way anymore. Well, hang in there. Things will change soon. At least we're able to see the iniquity in ourselves, I hope, and therefore overcome it. If you're in denial, think you're something that you're not, you're not going to overcome anything. Anyway, let's go on down to verse 10. I've also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and used similitudes or parables or symbols by the hand or the ministry of the prophets. So he said, I've warned you, I've talked to you, to this nation, through the Bible, through the years, but people don't pick up the Bible and read it in this nation, do they? For the most part, they don't even do it in the church, do they? Oh, I, I skipped down, I skipped verse 9, I didn't want to do that. He says, we say that we don't have sin as a nation, as a people, even as a church. Verse 9, and I that am the eternal your God from the land of Egypt will yet make you to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. Now, he's giving them a hard time here, so he doesn't suddenly say we're going to start having the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that'll come in the millennium to this nation, and they'll start keeping the Feast of Tabernacles right even in the church at some point. But what he's saying here is I'm going to make you live in tents or in boxes or in huts, it's another way of saying you're going to be kicked out of your McMansions. You're not going to live in them anymore. I'm going to make you dwell in huts. I'm taking you down as a nation. And we're in the process of our homes being taken away now, and it's going to worsen, not get better. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I've multiplied visions and used similitudes by the hand of the prophets. How many times can we find scriptures that say you'll have your houses taken away or strangers will live in your houses? There are lots of references to that in the prophecies. How many people have read them? How many people have picked up on it? Very few. They don't apply those things to us. And yet it's so clear, isn't it? How could they miss it? Their minds aren't open, they just don't see. Here a little, there a little, that they might be taken and snared and deceived. That they might be saved in the long run. But our chance is now. This is our opportunity. And we better pay heed. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. That's a, Gilead was a city of Israel. There's... We're a nation full of vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yes, their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the field. We say we're a religious people. We have churches on every corner. It's getting to the point where people don't even bother to go. 
Verse 12, And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. So he's saying, look back to all these prophets of the past and understand what Israel, your forebears, have been through. It's echoing what was said in Malachi there about needing to turn our hearts to our fathers. We need to look back to Moses and to Jacob and to do as they did and to obey as they did and hear the message that they gave of turning to God and repentance. Because it's not like I haven't left you a cloud of witnesses as to what I expected of you and what I expected you to be. And when you wouldn't turn to me and you murmured and complained, what happened? And even though Moses, a prophet, was guiding you out of Egypt, you rebelled, complained, griped, murmured, and your carcasses fell in the desert. Only your children went in. You know, I, I don't think we really grasp it sometimes. We read the commandments, say, well, I shouldn't lie, I shouldn't kill, I shouldn't steal, shouldn't break the Sabbath, and on and on, shouldn't put other gods before God. But they were not necessarily breaking the Sabbath as they crossed the Red Sea. They were not necessarily lying or cheating or stealing. They were just complaining. That's all they were doing is complaining. They didn't have a thankful attitude. They had a murmuring, negative, complaining attitude. And God caused them all to die just because of that attitude. That is incredible, isn't it? We think in America we have the right to gripe about anything we want to gripe about. We can gripe about the politicians, we can gripe about the lawyers, we can gripe about our neighbors, we can gripe about anything. In America, we have freedom of speech. So griping is an accepted form. It's just something we do. We don't think wrong of being in a negative complaining attitude, do we? We're just born to complain. Farmers whole basic attitude is complaining about the weather, complaining about the rain, complaining about the price of grain, whatever it is. Now, some of them have a positive outlook, but I'm just saying in general, we as a people, no matter what walk of life, it seems, complain. Complain about the boss, complain about the food, you know, it just goes on and on. God says, be you thankful. And yet, well, it's just something we need to think about, maybe, and begin to work on. And realize that a thankful attitude is what God is after, a positive attitude like Joseph had, and not a complaining one. I'm kind of keying off, I guess, on verse 13, but it's just one little example. Well, it's a big example, really of what happened when Moses brought them out. You would have thought 
that after all those years of oppression, they would have been so thankful to get out of there that that would last, that it would carry over. But they had habits. Do you think when they were in there making bricks and building cities for the Egyptians that they weren't complaining? Griping? Murmuring? Sit around the house at night after eating what little the Egyptians gave them to eat? And complained about their bosses? I'm sure they did. Israelites seemed to have a real proclivity for it. So it had been a habit, a lifestyle that they had had for all those years. And God left them there for a long, long time in captivity. And maybe he was hoping that if he sent a deliverer, that they would be so thankful to God and to Moses for what God was doing through them and delivering them from bondage. And they did start out with a high hand. But as soon as a little bit of adversity came, they went right back to the same attitude they'd had against the Egyptians. It had been built into them, generation to generation. So it was only natural, at the first sign of adversity, they complained about the leadership. And that's what we do. That's what Americans are good at. But we need to get past it. I could probably think of a dozen other things uh, about Moses and Egypt, but this isn't the Passover season. Let's just understand that God is saying you need to look back there and learn lessons from Jacob, from Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Understand those men. So that's what he's reminding here. In verse 14, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his eternal return to him. God is not going to let up. He's going to remember the things about us that have brought us where we are today as a nation and as a church. And the punishment is coming. The blood will be shed. There's no getting around it. Chapter 13, when Ephraim spoke trembling... He exalted himself in Israel. God says, to this man will I look, to him that fears and trembles at my word. So when Ephraim had that attitude, they feared God and feared every word that he spoke. Then they were exalted. But when he offended in Baal, he died. This nation started out with people keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days, back in Rhode Island and scattered through the earliest colonies. Christmas and Easter were illegal. Couldn't keep them legally in this country. But it didn't take long till that was shouted down. They started keeping the pagan stuff and got rid of everything godly. So some of those people did tremble at God's word when they first came here. But we've been dying a death ever since as we went our own way and offended in Baal. And now they sin more and more. It's just increasing, worse and worse. They've made them molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. So they made all these idols, and they want us to go up and kiss them like you would 
a golden calf like Israel made when they came out of Egypt. Kiss all these idols, this material society we have, all the gods we've made for ourselves. Sacrifice to these. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away, as the chaff that is driven with a whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. So we're going to just disappear like a puff of smoke coming out of the chimney. Blows away on the wind, that's the end of it. Our wealth will vanish like smoke. And it's just, it's going up in smoke right now. They're not in there making a new plan for a world economic system. They already have one. All they're doing now is starting to institute it. The plan has been made a long time ago. Now they're starting to make it happen by pulling down what is here, getting together, and talking about how and when and all the whereabouts of how the new plan will be instituted. Don't know how long it'll take, but I don't think it'll take long. This is a history-making day. They're meeting there in Bretton Woods, too, to decide the fate of America. Well, no, they've already decided the fate. Now they're implementing the fate. What do we do next to get this plan going? They're discussing you and me there today and how they'll take our wealth away and how they'll make peasants of us. That's what's on the table. Verse 4. Yet I am the eternal your God from the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I think it's interesting that where he's talking about all of the blessings we've had going up as a puff of smoke as it is today, that God reminds us that he is God, and that we'll not have any other God but him. Now what is the danger we're facing this very day? It is that this beast power is going to be unveiled in the next few months, probably. And the whole world is going to worship it. Because they are going to crash the economy of the whole world to the point that everyone is going to be in total despair with no hope. And people by the millions and millions increasingly starving to death. And when they offer this new plan, People will grab it like a drowning man grabs a piece of wood. Well, he's warning us as our wealth disappears to remember he is the only God to worship, not the coming false Christ and the beast that the whole world is going to worship. There is no timelier scripture than these right here for us to consider this very day. You shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Now they're going to think that this new government is going to save them, but it won't. The times of the Gentiles will start, and at the end of it, the day of the Lord, seven last plagues, the beast and the false prophet are going to be taken by the neck and thrown into the lake of fire. So that which seems so hopeful will in a very, very few short years 
be completely destroyed. So the only salvation is in God. I did know you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Now, he knew them in the wilderness in Moses' day, to which he has already referred, but I think he's also making a prophecy for today that his people will be drawn into the wilderness and he will remember us in the land of great drought. Because great, great drought is about to come on this country. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they have forgotten me. We've had the breadbasket of the world. We've had the most productive country in the world. And with all this wealth and materiality, we've done the unthinkable. We've forgotten God. We've forgotten Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who obeyed God. And we've forgotten that we were given this promised land because of them. And that God promised he would bless us and that this nation would be double fruitful. That's what Ephraim means, double fruit. But God made those predictions, and he, almighty God, made it happen. He even took us into captivity by ships to the Middle East. And we wandered then up through Western Europe. And he kept us away from here for thousands of years. And then he allowed us to come back. And we started out. wanting to obey God, and very quickly denied it and turned from it. We don't know our own history. We don't understand. We don't care in this nation anymore. God gave us the promised land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we immediately began to forget him. A sad story. We did exactly what our fathers did. We've repeated it. Only a few will repent. Only a few will hear and listen. Change. Turn to God. Therefore I will be to them as a lion and as a leopard by the way will I observe them. A lion and a leopard by the way look upon you as meat. As you walk by, they'll kill you. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. A sow whose cubs have just been taken away from her has an attitude. And God says, that's the attitude I'm going to have toward the nation of Ephraim. I will win the call of their heart. The covering, the sack around their heart will be ripped open. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. What's going to happen to this country in the, month, in the months ahead? Oh, Israel, you have destroyed yourself. It isn't God's fault that we denied him. He gave us everything you could possibly want in this land. This American dream that's turning into an American nightmare right now. You've destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. You're about to go under. I'm about to turn the lions, the wolves, and the bears loose on you. 
But there's still hope if you will turn to me. Why will you die, O Israel? Why not turn to God? I will be your king. Those who respond to what he's saying right here, God will be their king, their savior. Where is any other that may save you in all your cities? Quick, somebody tell me where you can go in all the cities of this land and have peace and safety and be taken care of. Come on, come on. Give me a name. Can't do it, can you? There aren't any. There's no place to look. Well, why not pay attention to God then? Can look to him. Where is any other place that may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you said, give me a king and princess? I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Now he's telling us again, look at history. You wanted a king? I didn't want to give you a king. I wanted to be your king. But you wanted a king like all the other nations around you, so I let you pick out Saul. He was tall and handsome and powerful. You wanted a king. So I said, all right, have a king. That's what you want. You'll be taxed. You'll be oppressed. But if that's what you want, here he is. I'll give you Saul. The king of your choice. And I took him away in my wrath. Saul turned into an evil man. He was small in his own eyes and afraid when he first got appointed king. Then he became self-obsessed, narcissistic, narcissistic and demon-possessed. And God removed him for his own sins in wrath. Look at our history. Don't repeat it. Look to God. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid or hidden. In other words, God says, I remember your iniquities. They're before my face. They don't just happen and then go away, but they're bound up. They're written down. They're written in his mind. Could also have another nuance or meaning. That is, we bind it up and hide it from ourselves. Not only does God have it and has it bound up so that we'll pay the price, but we also hide from our sins. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. Now, I don't understand that entirely. I've watched women in travail you girls understand this scripture better than any of the men here. The pain associated with childbirth. You probably wanted that over as quickly as possible. Didn't want it to continue. Sometimes with your first one, it went on an awful lot longer than you wanted second and third and fourth, maybe they came a little easier and it didn't last as long, but you still didn't look forward to that part of it, I'm sure. And when that first pain came, oh no, here it comes. I, I don't know, it must be mixed feelings. You've been carrying that thing around that long and you're getting real tired of it hanging out there and you want to get rid of it, but that 
It must be kind of a mixed feeling, I guess, of joy that this will soon be over and I can be holding that baby, uh, but the pain that is involved in it can't be that much to look forward to, I wouldn't think. But the problem is, he says, the sorrows of a prevailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. Why go through the pain week after week, month after month, and year after year? Get it done. Now we have known we're out here to bring forth the man-child. We're to produce Christ in our character. To give birth to his character in our lives. And we are not wise if we take our time about overcoming and changing, are we? Because the pain remains. Sometimes we just don't want to give up. We don't want to go ahead and flush it out and be done with it. So we hang on and we hang on. And so the pain remains. I wish that everyone in here, right now, 10 after 1, 11 after 1, I wish that everyone here would determine never to sin again and never to give in to any of their weaknesses ever again. And when you walk out of here to the potluck, you will never, ever sin again. You would have overcome everything. And the pain of dealing with human nature and our sins and our weaknesses would be gone. Dream on, Daryl. Not going to happen. We don't turn loose that fast. We can't overcome that way. Human beings tend to change very slowly. And we get attitudes, and they become our attitudes, and we just simply will not give them up, whatever they are. Now, some things you do, some things you're willing to give up. But usually, as human beings, we have one or two or three or five or 40 special things that we have trouble with that we just can't turn loose of. There are special weaknesses or our special idols or our special uh, desires or whatever it might be that we have trouble dealing with. Oh, that it would be so simple, but it's difficult. But we just have to remember this is boot camp, and boot camp is meant to be hard, meant to be difficult. Everything in us yearns to do whatever the self, the body, the emotions, the feelings, desires. And those are contrary to God. So it's a struggle. But boy, the reward is worth it. We needn't be discouraged by it, but we need to do everything we can to make the changes we need to make so that life can be peaceful and we won't have to fight quite so hard. You know, some people have overcome, let's say, smoking. And the further it gets in their rearview mirror, the better it is, the easier it gets, and the less you want to go back to it. But sometimes making that decision and sticking to it is very, very difficult. And there are some people 
maybe 20, 30 years after they quit smoking, you'll see them holding a pencil like this. You know, old habits die hard. But it's not wise to stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. It's best to go ahead and get this done as quickly as we can. I will answer them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plague. So grave, I will be your destruction. Repentance or relenting shall be hid from my eyes. I'm not going to just forget it, repent or relent or change my mind. Trouble's coming. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, now that's speaking of Ephraim, fruitful among his brethren. In other words, double fruit. We have more fruit, more blessings than any other of our brethren, of, of the other tribes. You name any other tribe other than Ephraim, and they don't have as many blessings as we have this very day. An east wind shall come, the wind of the eternal shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. So this fruitfulness, this double blessing we've had, is going to be simply taken away. Samaria, which was the ten northern tribes, shall become desolate, for she has rebelled against her God. Now he, he calls out Ephraim first as the leader, as the firstborn. And more of the responsibility and the punishment comes on Ephraim. He who is given much is required much. And we've been given more than anyone else, so God is going to require more of us than anyone else. It's the way it is. I think that might even be true of us here in this group of people. I think we've been given more understanding and knowledge than most. And with that knowledge comes a responsibility. And what we do with it is very, very important. And it will have a lot of, to do with the judgment God has on us. Now, I don't, by that, contradict what I said earlier. I think God is probably very pleased that this group of people is willing to face reality, face our sins and our weaknesses, and work at doing something about it, and try to return to him with our whole heart, and we're working on that daily. So that's the good side of this. And yet at the same time, we have a lot to change, to grow, to overcome. We've been given a lot. So God expects a lot of us. So even though this has been a fruitful nation, the trouble is coming. It will become desolate, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. The Gentile nations who come in here with their bayonets and swords will take the little babies, the little children, by the feet, and dash their head against a concrete wall or a sidewalk. And their heads will explode and their brains will be all over the pavement. And that baby that you cherish and love in your womb, you're going to have a sword go right up the middle of it and drop it out on the ground. If you're an American woman, when this happens. Now perhaps that's a bit graphic. 
but I'd rather be a bit graphic now and get our attention than I had to see it happen to people, to individuals. If 90% of the church is left behind in the tribulation, and they're left behind, that means some of my friends of the past, some of my relatives, this will happen to people I know. Now those people, in many respects, are in the past. But you're here, and you're now. And I hope we can all count each other as our friends and our relatives, our family. And I don't want it to happen to any of us. Let's not let that happen, brethren. This isn't a prophecy that is 10, 20, 30 years down the road. I will be surprised if we don't see this happen within the next year. Certainly no more than two or three. That it could happen in the next three or four months. I don't know exactly how the timing is going to come out. But it's close. It's imminent. It's not far off. You see why God says in Matthew that as the time gets near, that it's dangerous to be pregnant or nursing a child, to have little children. Because he knows what's coming, and he warns his people there in Matthew 24, understand the times, know what's about to happen, and be prepared, and don't make yourself more vulnerable than you need to be. This is a grim and dire warning for our country, but and for us. But at the same time, he does say, look to me, your Savior, and I will be your king. If you'll obey me, I will draw you out of this. I'll take care of you. And after making this very serious statement in verse 16, he makes a plea. Chapter 14, O Israel, return to the eternal your God. There is a way out of what we just read. For you have fallen by your own iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the eternal and say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips, our offerings, our prayers. Or as one translation put it, we'll offer you the sacrifice of praise. And another one put it, the fruit of our lips. Just take your words with you and go to God and lay them on him. And ask him to forgive us and have mercy and receive us graciously. Now in the light of what he just said to us, that's the way out. That's the answer. That's where to go. That's what to do. To ensure that what we just read about doesn't happen to any of us. And hopefully, and here's part of the work of God. Hopefully, we can do this in such a way that we are a light to others, to our brethren, to our families, to our relatives, and they will see what we're doing, and they'll repent and turn to God themselves, and maybe be delivered. 
We're not here just to save our own hides, brethren. I hope we understand that by now. We're here to prepare for others. We're here to set an example for others and set a light on a hill that cannot be hid and to give them hope because they're not, most of them, reading these chapters. They're not paying any attention to these prophets. Hosea mentioned Jacob and Moses. He didn't mention himself, but he's one of them as well. So he's telling you and me what to do when we see what is happening and is about to happen. We need to go to God and pray for forgiveness and mercy and graciousness and his face to turn and bless us. And then maybe others will see that and see what was required and what happened as a result. And God will open the windows of heaven and bless us beyond our wildest imagination. Why? Just because we're the good guys? No. So that others might hear and fear and repent and change and turn to God with their whole heart and come help build the temple. We're here as a witness to the church and ultimately as a witness to the world. That's what we're here for. Not to save ourselves, but to help save others. If we say help save others, we will ourselves be saved. Now isn't that what Herbert Armstrong said to us over and over again in a little different way? Yes, it is. I can remember hearing him say it. You're not here for your personal salvation, brethren. You're here to do a work. His work was not exactly as he understood it, but he did a work. And now we're here to do a more intense work, a bigger work, a more powerful work. And truly, witness for God's people and witness against the world by obedience to God. And the false prophet and the false animal or beast that they are going to worship. We're here to stand, to be strong, to be courageous, to be powerful, to be obedient and serve the Lord our God. That's what we're here for. Why is Christ marrying his bride? Just for her happiness and his happiness? No. He wants his bride to help him train and rear his children properly in the millennium in the great white throne judgment. Now in that, they will find fulfillment and happiness and love. But that's what he's calling us for. He's not calling us just so we can be a sweet, happy bride. He's calling us so that we can help others turn to God. That's why he's calling on us to do it first. Please forgive us. Take away our iniquity and receive us graciously. And we'll render to him our offerings and our prayers. Asher shall not save us. 
The Assyrian won't save us, and yet the nation, like a silly dove, is meeting with Assyria in Washington, D.C. right now. Right now, as we speak. Fulfilling these prophecies of Hosea. But they won't save us. We will not ride upon horses, meaning warfare, the power of a horse. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. Our iPods, the work of our hands, all of our little electronic devices that we worship in this country so much, and everything else. We won't look to those things anymore. They won't be our gods. For in you, the fatherless finds mercy. We're going to be looking for mercy soon. We're going to be looking for deliverance soon. And all these gadgets, and the materiality, and the latest style of clothes or whatever is being adopted will not be on our minds. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. And my anger is turned away from him. To those that repent, God's anger will just dissipate like a cloud before the sun. And he'll bless us. I will be as the dew to Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his fruits, his roots as Lebanon. Lebanon known for its cedars. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. We all like to smell a cedar chest, don't we? Or walk into a cedar-lined closet. Oh, that smells good. That's what he's saying. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. He's going to gather them. They'll return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Good wine. You know, sometimes you smell or taste wine and mm, vinegar. And then you get one that's really good and, ah, tastes good too. That's the way it's going to be. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? This terrible trouble that's coming is going to make them depart from idols and say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to worship God. That's where the true blessings come. I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. For me is your fruit found. Or from me is your fruit found. He gave us fruit. He made us a very fruitful country. Now he's going to take it away. But when this country totally, truly repents after the wars and the privation and the starvation, and that's what it's going to take. We'll turn to God and find, and find our fruit in him, not in the American dream. So Hosea then closes it by asking some questions. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? I think that implies that there won't be very many. Who is wise? We're in a world of fools is what we're in. So who is wise that they will understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them. He'll understand them. He'll grasp it. Who will it be? 
For the ways of the eternal are right, and the just shall walk in them. Well, this is New Testament teaching. Doesn't he say, walk as he walked? Who will be wise and understand and see and not only hear it, but walk that way? The just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. There's going to be a division made. God is going to protect those who will turn to him. He will use them to do his work, and the rest are going to go into it with the world. It's just coming down to that. And that decision is forthcoming. It's not far off. We'll either find ourselves where we ought to be, doing what we ought to be doing, and protected and blessed by God beyond comprehension, or we're going to be out there being ripped up. Just the way it is. There's no other path. There's no other course. You'll be one place or the other. You'll be with God, setting up a microcosm of the millennium as an example and a light to the world, or you'll be out there under the beast. A lot of God's people will realize they made mistakes. And then they'll begin to repent. But it'll be too late. They'll already be in it. And if they turn and obey God... During that tribulation, they will be killed for their trouble. They'll be martyred. Great martyrdom is coming. Who is wise and repents now? Who's wise and turns to God now? So this isn't a downer. doesn't have to be a downer. You know why it looks grim to us? It looks grim... Because we realize we still have a lot of faults and problems and weaknesses. And we realize that God has to examine our hearts and try our reins. And we all feel hopeful, but a little fearful. Because we know we're not what we really ought to be. And not only that, we've been working at it long enough that sometimes we kind of despair that we'll ever make the changes we need to make. Or maybe in some cases we're just blind to some of our faults and problems and self-righteousness and whatever else we have. So it's a little scary. But he tells us, don't fear. Just be courageous. Fear not. Be strong and work. That means do his work. And if we will do those things, we'll be safe. He'll take care of us. Let's be wise. Let's be understanding. Let's walk as Christ walked. Give birth to him. And we know then that he'll use us as a part of his work to be a light to the world and help those find the way who didn't know the way. That's what we're here for. Just comprehend this. God is going to call a 10% remnant of the church from all over the world to build his temple here in the latter times. Now, he's called us 
I believe, to prepare a place, to prepare a way, to be here so they may have an opportunity. Now, I think Isaiah 52 makes it fairly clear, among other scriptures, that those people are not going to come until they see God bless us. Then they will recognize his hand in it. Up until that time, we're just idiots that went out in the desert somewhere. Crazy. Cracked. Most of the church may not even know of us, but the ones that do, and probably most do, we've been in the journal and word gets around. They know we're out here. But they just think we're nuts. Well, God created nuts, I guess. I like walnuts and pecans and But are we good nuts or bad nuts? <laughs> you know? We were called out here so that we could obey and God would then bless us and other people would see that blessing and see his hand and then come from all over the world by the thousands to receive those same blessings. Now, we don't want to let them down, do we? We want to see this thing through. We want to finish it. We want to be prepared. We want God to forgive us. We want Him, His face, to shine like the sun on us and bless us to the point that they can come, as Isaiah 55 says, and have wine and milk without money. Money's going away. They'll have a new system. But God is going to bless us in such a way that they can come and have everything they need or could want. Because we did what we're supposed to do. We finished our job. And then God did his job. We responded just as he said he would, and he will. And we can be a blessing to those people out there who do not know right now what to do or where to turn. I just talked to a man recently who said, it's laid on me, I need to do something, but I don't know quite where to go or what to do. I know I need to do something. I need to get out of this city I'm in. But he didn't know what to do. Now he's been reading or listening to a lot of our tapes. I think he'll probably be out here to visit very shortly. Look us over. Check our teeth. See what we're doing. There may be others. No, God has not blessed us in such a way that people all around the world can see it yet. But he's promised he will if we'll do our part. So let's be wise. Let's understand that our job is not to run out here to the desert to save ourselves from the beast to come. Our job is to come out here and help save others. I can hardly wait when I think about it to see their faces as they realize the terror that will befall them wherever they're living in this world. The people of God 
who understand God and who don't want to be a part of the beasts that they see rising up, the ones who God can see and knows that they are the elect, wherever they may be in whatever branch of the church they may be in, he knows and checks their hearts, and he knows who are his. He knows the ones that he will call, or he's making those judgments now. He's choosing a few out of the many who are called. He's sorting it. He's pondering their hearts. And then when he does what he said he's going to do, they will flee in terror from the beast they see rising up out of the ocean, the seas, the people. And they'll know where to go. But can you imagine when they're facing being ripped up, when they're facing being quartered, when they're facing all the atrocities that the Gentile mind will be dreaming up to use on Americans and upon all peoples of God, wherever they may be. The terror they will have and the joy that will light up their faces when they come under the protection of God Almighty in the place that he's set up for his people to be protected. I would hope the people that I've met over the years, the congregations I've visited, the feast sites I've been to, my friends, my relatives that were in the church, some of them gone now, Will some of them be back? I just know there will be a lot of strangers that I've never met before who will come. But among those, I'm going to see the faces of people I know, people that I have known, people that I've loved 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and then walked out of their lives, went across the country to another congregation, never saw them again. I know in this group, some of those people that I knew and haven't seen for decades will come in among them. You know, I can just, you, I can just, just standing here talking or thinking about it, my, my heart begins to swell and I'm getting ready for some big hugs. Because those are people that I've known and loved. And some of them I've forgotten. When I see their face, well, I say that. They've aged a lot. I see some of my own cousins that I knew 50 years ago, and I, I meet them, which I did recently, and I couldn't tell two of my cousins which was which. I remembered, remembered them as 14 and 16 years of age, and here they were, 60 and above. And I couldn't tell which was which. But maybe they'll say, hey, behind all these wrinkles, it's me. Remember me? Then it'll get happy. We are blessed, brethren, I think, beyond what we even grasp or comprehend with the knowledge we have and what God has given us to do. Not because we're great, but because we're willing. We're willing to give up any and everything to put him first. And he 
will bless us beyond our comprehension. We won't go back through the whole book of Isaiah and read that, but it's there. All right, let's go to the book of Obadiah. We've got a couple more areas that uh, the nation of Ephraim and the church as Ephraim are mentioned in Scripture. Now this book is written about Edom, and you'll remember the story of Jacob and Esau, and how Jacob received the blessing and Esau did not. They would also become a great nation, and part of the promise, the blessing if you could call it that, that had been given to Jacob and not to Esau, and Isaac searched through and tried to find some way to give some kind of blessing to Esau. He loved him more than he loved Jacob. Now God didn't. And God had changed things around, but Isaac himself had a fondness for Esau that was beyond what he had for Jacob. So he says, well, you'll dwell in the fat places, you'll be around the wealth, and so on. But he said, and Esau himself said that he would kill his brother Jacob. He would take care of that skunk. And God said, wouldn't happen till the end, but at the end, he would break the yoke of Jacob off his neck. And we've identified a lot of the Edomites as people who say they are Jews but are not. They've converted to Judaism in many cases, but they're the Ashkenazis, Edomite Jews, not real Jews by blood. Maybe some of them partly, they've intermarried, but... The Sephardic Jews, perhaps, are for the most part the true Jew people, and the Ashkenazis are the Edomites. And they are all through our banking system, all through the financial companies, and they are having the last, well, no, the next to last laugh right now. As they are preparing this very day to finish taking down the financial system of America and ruin the dollar, and turn us into peasants and slaves. That's what they're doing today, right this very day, in meetings in Washington, D.C. And it says they will laugh at our calamity when we go down. Yeah, they had this big bailout thing, we're going to cover these bad mortgages. And then they did a U-turn and decided that they would bail out their banking partners and their friends, their fellow Edomites. And that's exactly what they're doing. And if you think... They care about us. You'd better think again. They think of themselves and they think of us as nothing but peons and slaves. And they are going to destroy all the wealth that we have enjoyed. And they're going to laugh at our calamity and that's what this book is all about. Now we've been reading in Hosea about Ephraim and what is about to happen. Then we see some more dire warnings in Joel and Amos. And then we get to the book of Obadiah, and he addresses Ephraim again, along with the rest of Israel. But Joseph particularly. So that's pretty well the story here. He says in verse 10, For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. 
And the day that you stood on the other side, and the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, and you were as one of them. You have spoken proudly in the day of distress, end of verse 12. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yes, you should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Right now, today, through these trillions of dollars of bailout money, they are laying hands on our substance. God says you shouldn't do that. And our calamity is upon us. And they are doing it gleefully and joyfully and paying each other and taking it away from us. Don't think they're not doing it with malice aforethought. Esau still has that bitter edge against Jacob and against Ephraim in particular. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. When God's people try to escape, they're going to try to cut us off. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all your heathen drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Die and be forgotten. His holy mountain is in this country, Mount Ephraim and Mount Zion. It's right here. And this is the one that they are setting their hand to destroy right now. The other Israelite nations will go down as well, but we are their prime target. We are modern Babylon and the leader of it. And this nation will be destroyed and they will rejoice. We read this as a prophecy years ago. Didn't fully understand it. Today, before our very eyes, it's being fulfilled. All you have to do is turn on a business channel. All you have to do is pull up websites and read articles and see what is being done to us. It's not a prophecy. It's happening. It was a prophecy until now. Verse 17, But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. God has called us out here to Mount Zion. And he's going to be with us here. If we obey, if we don't, he'll get somebody else to do the job. But the time is close. The time is near. We need to respond. Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. We'll make a separation between the clean and the unclean, as Haggai said. And there will be holiness. God says, be you holy that bear the vessels of the eternal. Or be you clean, it says there in Isaiah 52, that bear the vessels of the eternal. Clean, holy, it's the same thing. God did not call us out here just to struggle through. He called us out here to be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. 
we're going to possess their possessions. I think I will for a moment here turn back to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. Somebody asked me last Sabbath about Esau here. And it's always been a conundrum to me a little bit, a mystery. Why he opens the book of Malachi speaking especially to Esau, and then he goes on and talks about the priests and the ministry and the church and the polluted bread that is upon the altar and the vomit on the altars and so on of the church. Well, why does he start with Esau? It's always been a curiosity to me. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So this is a woe to Israel and to the church, this book. He says, I have loved you, says the eternal. So he's, he's addressing Israel, I've loved you. Yet you say, how is it you've loved us? We don't have everything we want. How has your love been shown? We haven't been healed. We haven't been blessed. We tithe and the windows of heaven didn't open. We've tried to keep the Sabbath and feasts and now we've been blown apart. Spiritual Israel is the primary thing he's talking to, the church. And he loved ancient Israel, but he divorced them. So after having divorced them, his love has turned to the church. So that's whom he's addressing primarily here. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Eternal, yet I loved Jacob. I had the two brothers there, but I chose Jacob of the two. I don't care what Isaac thought, that was my choice. I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom said, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. <laughs> says the eternal of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the eternal has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the eternal will be magnified from the border of Israel. Somebody says, what's this talking about? And it just hit me. I have felt for many years that the Mormons around this area probably are a mixture of Ammonites, Moabites, got a town of Moab over here, the only place on earth named Moab's right over in southeastern Utah, and Edomites. I have talked to Mormons <coughs> who see a Jewish background in some of their families. One Mormon family I knew from Salt Lake years and years ago even had in their background, even though they'd been Mormons for generations, they wouldn't eat unclean meats. Now, they didn't get that from Joseph Smith. Makes me wonder if there is not a strong Edomite element in the Mormon community. And we're finding that Mount Zion and probably Jerusalem, I think undeniably Jerusalem at this point, is right in amongst them as well. 
Now this area had been desolate, and we have several scriptures, Jeremiah 9, 11, Isaiah 61, several others, that talk about how Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations, and only a place for jackals and dragons, or coyotes and lizards. And that is true. There's not one single individual living in the area that I think was the original Jerusalem today. And it has been desolate for many generations. Scraped clean and every vestige of buildings removed or buried. Not one stone left upon another. Now what did the Mormons do? They came out and said, we'll build the desolate places. They came west to the desolate areas of the deserts of Utah and Idaho and northern Arizona and Nevada and this general area. And they built Mormon temples all over it, didn't they? They built up the desolate places. They shall build, but I will throw them down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness. And they will receive the indignation. Someone told me yesterday that the main Mormon offices are not here anymore in Utah. I say here in Utah, we're four miles from it. But so their main offices and administration of the church are in Los Angeles, Washington, and New York. They are tied in up to here with the New World Order. Joseph Smith was a Mason. Because of the reputation, the Mormons forbid their members to be Masons for a long time. And it's only been recently now that they've allowed them to become Masons. But that's what Joseph Smith was. They're tied in with the New World Order. Mitt Romney, one of theirs, was in the thick of things for president just recently. And this is the area that God is going to work in. And it is an area that is Mormon. And we just read there in Obadiah that we will possess their possessions. Very interesting. I asked somebody who studied the history of this area a lot yesterday about this, showed it to him. And he says, oh, he says, that makes sense. He says, Colorado City was the capital, anciently, of Edom. But this Arizona Strip was Edom, down to the Grand Canyon. And when Moses brought the people through, the people in Colorado City, wasn't named that then, wouldn't let them come through, so they had to circle way around to come up this valley on their way back into the Promised Land. How about that? Makes sense to me when I understand that these prophecies are talking about this area where God is going to work, and it was the original area, and if we're going to possess their possessions, then they must be around here somewhere. I wasn't going to get into that, but I couldn't help it. Sorry about that. All right, let's go to Zechariah 9. I don't know how much time I have left on the tape, but I want to cover two more places, two more places right here together, where it talks about Ephraim in the Old Testament prophecies, and then that's all of them. So let's see if we can get that in very quickly here. <clears throat> Zechariah 9. We're not in the millennium yet. Christ doesn't return till uh, Zechariah 14. And it's still a burden of the word of the Lord 
uh, in Hadrach, Damascus, and so on, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the eternal. Speaking of the church here, when God's people are going to begin to turn to God, it's talking about the time, verse 3, Tyre did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Speaking of, I think, New York. Behold, the Eternal will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. So it's setting the table for what is happening in our country right now. We're having a fire run through the financial district of New York, and it will finally turn to a physical thing that will destroy. <clears throat> Verse 8, let's skip on down. I will encamp about my house because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returns, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with my eyes. God is watching us, and if we repent and obey him, he will have seen with his eyes, and he will protect us from all these armies that come through the land. Isn't it interesting that God says when this flood overflows, it will not go over Moab and Ammon. And I believe that this Mormon area has been partly Moab and Ammon, and was anciently. So it's not talking about over there in the Middle East, it's talking about here, and how God will protect his people here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king comes to you. He says he'll come and dwell with us in Zechariah 2, and that's the time of the ministry of the witnesses, all of us, and the two witnesses, is the timing. I will come and dwell with you, he says. That's before he returns to this earth in power. But he's going to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Shout, O daughter of Zion, your king comes to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Not coming on a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood, as he says he will in the book of Revelation later on. But he's still coming in a meek, humble fashion, may not even be visible, but he's going to be with us regardless. A wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat, as it says. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river, the Atlantic, even to the ends of the earth. So from this little start, God's kingdom is going to branch out to the whole earth. As for you also by the blood of your covenant, and it's in Ephraim and Jerusalem he's talking about. So it's this country, it's right here, where he's going to protect his people and cut the horse, the chariot, the warfare away from them and not let Satan overrun them. As for you also by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you that is blessing. When I have bent Judah for me, fill the bowl with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, or the Gentiles. Micah 4 says there will be seven, even eight, that he sends out, and he'll make us a new threshing instrument, he says there, in Micah 4, and also in Isaiah, I think it's 41. A threshing instrument, threshes, it mixes, it tears, it cuts off. 
And he's going to make his people of this end time that way. <clears throat> He'll make you as the sword of a mighty man. will be able to call plagues down as we see fit through our leaders, the two witnesses. But we're all witnesses of God, so I say we. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and the eternal God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. He'll blow his trumpet, and people will respond. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. This isn't the millennium. This is a time when there's still war going on, and the beast is going to be fighting God's people. But he's going to give us strength over the beast until those last three and a half days when they kill the two witnesses and think they have won. So it's right here in Ephraim at Mount Zion that this all occurs. Now let's pick up one more in chapter 10. Uh, it says, Ask you of the eternal rain in the time of the latter rain. That's in the springtime. Joel says he'll give us those blessings, the former and the latter rain, in the first month in the book of Joel. So it's in the springtime, the time of the latter rain, that God says for us to ask for the latter rain. Is this the year coming up before Passover, the first month? The God will begin to give us the former and the latter rain? I don't know. We speculated on that last year. But things have changed, haven't they? Things are a lot different today than they were last spring. There's a lot going on. Maybe this is the year coming up. I hope so. So shall the eternal make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. But he's going to give true blessing. Because there was no shepherd. My anger was kindled against the shepherds. <clears throat> then it mentions the house of Judah and says, Out of him came forth the corner, the nail, the battle bow, speaking of Christ, and they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the eternal is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. God is going to give his church power like no one has ever seen on earth. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, the church. I'm not talking about the Jews physically. They're out of it till the millennium, or the great white throne judgment. I will strengthen the house of spiritual Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy on them. Where is he going to place them? In Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And they shall be as though I have not cast them off, for I am the eternal their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Happy, happy. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the eternal. If we do our part, this is what God says will be for us. Here in the land of Ephraim at Mount Zion, we will be blessed and will be given power over the beast. That's the prophecy for spiritual Ephraim, while physical Ephraim goes down and will not be heard of again until the millennium. Rejoice in what you know.